Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. If you're not driving down the highway, well, you can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a fabulous chat room, a great group of people. You know, we have people that come every week. and We have people that come by just occasionally, whichever category you're in. Do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. Well, in this week's spotlight, we've got something that may be a little controversial, but after all, this is provocative enlightenment. So I want to focus for just a minute on communication. The art of communication is more than just listening and then offering either a rebuttal or agreement. It certainly is much more than refusing to even entertain an idea that is contrary to your own, and that is exactly what Ravinder found on her Facebook wall this week. Here is what the post basically said, quote, If you are a Trump supporter, please unfriend me now. Close quote. We were at lunch with our son when Ravinder informed us of this post, and since we both try to remain open-minded and publicly apolitical, our discussion became more one of how people fail to communicate rather than one of the right or wrong behind this sort of attitude. And that was going just fine until our 17-year-old son spoke up with his observation, quote, That's crazy. I'd unfriend immediately just because she is so narrow-minded. Close quote. He then proceeded to open his smartphone and share something Jeff Foxworthy said. And again, I quote, If a Republican doesn't like guns, he doesn't buy one. If a Democrat doesn't like guns, he wants all guns outlawed. If a Republican doesn't like a talk show host, he switches channels. A Democrat demands that those they don't like be shut down. If a Republican is a non-believer, he doesn't go to church. A Democrat non-believer wants any mention of God and religion silenced. And on and on this went. Now, I'm no Jeff Foxworthy, but this form of argument could as well be made in the opposite direction. One might say it this way. If a Republican doesn't believe in abortion, he wants to make it illegal. If a Republican is heterosexual, he wants everyone to be heterosexual. If a Republican is Christian, he wants God involved in everything, and again, on and on. Okay, the problem with the Foxworthy style is it positions for an argument. And the problem with the proposition of just unfriend me is that it positions away from any discussion. So whatever happened to the notion behind the idea of our protected freedom of assembly? Are we all just uh, to take up some hard line and refuse to hear another out? Or in the alternative, are we to so position the argument as to demean the opposition in our positioning? 
Obviously, the answer is neither. Now, clearly, at least according to Webster, there has been communication in both of these examples, for Webster defines communication this way, a process by which information is exchanged between individuals through a common system of symbols, signs, or behavior. But is this the kind of communication we truly desire? Studies have repeatedly shown that real communication occurs when the parties involved hear each other out, listen intently, Walk in the other person's shoes for a moment as that trite but true metaphor goes. Find empathy and then exchange their own ideas with the acquired patience that comes from really understanding each other. For what it's worth, as this political season heats up, passions will run high. This is not an ordinary election cycle. Young people are more involved than I have ever witnessed. So remember... When we are aroused, passionate, we can easily find those strong emotions morphing into anger, impatience, and so forth. And the next thing you know, well, you might just be snapping at everyone. My advice, don't get drawn in. Take a deep breath and let water seek its own level. Ravinder, your thoughts on this one. Oh, I have lots of thoughts on this one. Um... You know, I've been, I found the whole thing very distressing this year. I normally get involved in politics, but it really does look like communications have crashed. People aren't talking anymore. It's more a case of if someone disagrees with you, they just tell you how wrong and stupid you are and go away. Um, I think, you know, the best way for the country to heal is for everyone to start thinking, why are Bernie Sanders supporters so passionate? What What is it? What is it that they're upset about? Why are the Trump supporters so passionate? You know, what what underlies it all? I think when you start asking those why questions, as you know, you've, you've discussed before, when you start asking the why questions, you realize that, you know, the people aren't so far apart. They're just, you know, looking at slightly different angles and they have sympathy for the other. You know, there there is a great deal of common ground if people would start listening and communicating as opposed to just disregarding anyone that um, disagrees with them. You know, when I was a boy growing up, I think like most young people, there was this axiom, you know, and that was you never talk about politics or religion. The problem with that axiom is we just divide ourselves into these little camps and we, we therefore lose the ability to communicate it's it's as though it's more important to belong to a team than it is to understand the rest of society and in my view until and unless we decide it's important to understand we're not only going to be a divided country but we're never going to have any peace in this world period end of quotation your team versus my team, you know, mentality is not how we get peace. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Stephen Drucker, and we discussed his marvelous book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, how the venture to genetically engineer our food has subverted science, corrupted government, and systematically deceived the public. Danielle wrote, This whole GMO story is frightening. So the FDA falsified information, and they proved that in court. So we know that most scientists do not believe they are safe, 
and they have never been proven to be safe. The fact that we are force-fed GMOs illegally, according to existing law, is both scandalous and so wrong, I want to scream. CB remarked, GMO companies were able to protect their product as intellectual property, and they could keep their own research secret as well as sue anyone not authorized to do studies on the products without permission of the owner company. Also, now that so many have eaten GMOs for so long, there is virtually no group you could hold as non as a non-contaminated example. Naomi wrote, It is so sad realizing how government has allowed the poisoning of our food. It's understandable to try to get our heads under the sand and play the denial game. Yet I know true healing doesn't happen until we wake up. I deeply appreciate your efforts and voice, Eldon, and as painful as the news can be, it's a needed wake-up call. Donna wrote, What you did not mention is that Monsanto has permanent protection from any consequences of their GMO products due to a federal constitutional bill that was passed and signed into law specifically protecting Monsanto from lawsuits resulting from their GMO products. This is the only law that I am aware of that names a specific company and provides complete immunity for its actions. Well, now that's a good point, Donna. But in my book, Gotcha, I do cover this and many other areas where government simply lies. Now, you might want to also put this in your for what it's worth category. If you don't like GMOs, you'll like this news even less. According to the new agricultural spending bill, taxpayers will fund pro-GMO propaganda. The spending bill calls for $3 million for consumer education and outreach to promote understanding and acceptance of biotechnology, a joint effort by the FDA and the USDA. What do you think of that, Ravinder? Your tax dollars, you know, selling you GMOs. I think it's dreadful. I think the whole system is so messed up. Absolutely. All right, moving on. Marsha wrote, I just love your show and your inner talk CDs. You must really feel good about helping all the people you have helped, Eldon. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, I must admit, Marsha, to loving letters like yours, and I know Ravinder does as well, don't you? Absolutely, I do. Beth wrote, I have purchased a soccer and winning sports performance inner talk programs for my son. I love your programs and fame. They are a great tool and have worked wonderfully. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, When Time Doesn't Heal, with Dr. Michael Nichols. Most of us have lost someone and fallen into the depths of depression and despair, at least for a bit. There are many reasons for this, including the reminder of our own mortality. The loss can sometimes lead to thoughts of ending it all. Then there is the guilt, the shame. What could I have done differently? Now, these losses are not just for our loved ones, but they can also come as a result of losing a friend and indeed even an animal friend. So is there a way to heal quickly? And if there is, do we really want to? I mean, a fair question might be, healing quickly seems to suggest that I didn't care enough. Don't we all have to grieve? And grieving for a few months is not uncommon when you really care, is it? Enter today's guest, Reverend Dr. Michael 
Nichols. Dr. Nichols' book, When Time Doesn't Heal, explores the grieving process and provides a proven method to overcome loss, grief, trauma, and PTSD in 30 minutes or less. And as remarkable as that sounds, it has nevertheless been repeatedly demonstrated to be true. Think of it. Free of grief, grief of any kind, including PTSD, in 30 minutes or less. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Michael L. Nichols retired from the U.S. Navy as lieutenant commander and later from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. His peers and superiors said, quote, he is 20 years ahead of his time, close quote. At Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, he was awarded the Navy Achievement Medal for creating the most innovative and effective correctional religious program in the United States, which lowered the incident rate by a documented 60%. Dr. Nichols graduated number one in his two U.S. Navy Leadership and Management courses, earned a Doctor of Ministry degree in Stress and Coping from San Francisco Theological Seminary, completed postgraduate work in neurolinguistic programming, and was awarded Master Practitioner and Trainer of NLP and Timeline Therapy. His published works include Communicate Through the Windows of the Mind, The Four Key Elements of a Successful Institutional Intervention, Playing in the Zone Made Easy, An Examination of Military Chaplaincy, Startup Styles, and When Time Doesn't Heal. Currently is the founder of Advanced Performance Engineering, LLC. He's a friend of mine, so let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Michael Nichols. Hello, Eldon. How are you doing today, sir? We haven't chatted in a long time. I see you've been very busy. I've been doing most excellently, and I appreciate you having me on the program. Oh, that's indeed, <laughs> um, indeed my pleasure, sir. Uh, I think the place to begin with today's discussion is with the subject of grief. You know... Should we honor our lost loved ones by grieving for a certain respectable length of time or not? Well, the literature, when I was taking my training, they said people will grieve anywhere normally from six months to three years. And when my mother died, that's what got me to write this uh, book and, the, and create the process. When I had my epiphany moment, I said to myself, I've got too much training in grief, stress, and coping, and uh, and neurolinguistic programming and hypnosis to force myself to go through the pain and agony. There has to be a better way. So when I had my epiphany moment, the entire process came together. I went back into my memory banks and started thinking about everything I'd ever learned. All right, I, w- I want to take that apart little by little as we go through today. But uh, in bottom line, then, is you're saying it's not necessary. I mean, we don't owe it to ourselves or to our loved ones to grieve for extended periods of time. That is correct. Let me expand on that. Please. Uh, a person has to grieve the same number of repetitions to get through the problem, whether they spend six months grieving or three years, or 50 years. Their mind is going to replay the program again and again and again, and until they reach threshold where they have their breakthrough, they're not going to finish the grieving process. 
Okay, now you have that down to the number of repetitions. If we're going to condition a Pavlovian dog, it's 144 repetitions. That's the magic number. How many repetitions are you talking about? Well, for a person, my belief from my experience of watching the clients go through it, it is uh, 26 repetitions. So 26, 20... And they make the mental picture and they reinforce the same thought and they need to say the, the, the process exactly the same. Okay. In your book, you lay out certain stages of grief following closely the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, and she kind of anchors this entire grief area. You strategize them this way. Recognize the problem of loss, acknowledge the emotion or disappointment, take ownership, and future pace. Let's address each of them, if we can, for a minute, and and how this 26 repetitions fits in. So what do you mean by recognize the problem of loss? Okay, as we're all aware in the healing field, there's a presenting problem, but that isn't necessarily the underlying secondary gain problem. Please expand. Okay. When somebody is hurting, they can say, I'm hurting, but that isn't what is the cause. They could have a biological issue or an emotional issue that is causing them to feel the pain. And by using the repetition model of saying, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, and repeat that 26 times, they then the mind somehow, the unconscious mind, presents the presenting problem of, oh, you did too much exercise yesterday and you're hurting not because you're just hurting because you exercised too much yesterday. So uh, the repetition in this particular answer or, or situation is actually an uncovering mechanism. Have I got that right? Exactly. It's to uncover what the real problem is. Okay. So you, I've lost a friend and uh, I go through the repetition process Initially, I'm thinking I'm going to really miss this guy. He's my best friend. He was like my father and my big brother and my best friend all rolled into one. And, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do without him. And and I go through the 26 repetitions, and then maybe I discover um, some other issue, something like, uh, you know, uh, life's not worth living without this relationship. Exactly, and it might present some other relationships that the person is fearful they're going to lose. So somehow, as they go through it, another problem comes up, and one problem leads to another, and then ultimately to potentially and hopefully a solution. Okay, now as a therapist to a therapist, let's assume I went through this 26 repetitions, and I uncover something, and I'm surprised by it. Should I do the 26 again to see if there is something underneath that as well? Exactly. You build off of each stage. It, it's, when I, it's like going fishing. You know, it's an art. Some people are good at fishing and others are not. The process is to let the person do their own self-fishing of what is in their unconscious mind. Do, do you find, Dr. Nichols, that... Uh Utilizing this process in other areas besides grief uh, is an effective uh, strategy for uncovering? Uh, yes. It's sort of like, uh, I think the popular term today 
is mindfulness. Uh, when you any psychologist you go to, right. they tell the person to get into being mindful of what is going on. That's a cognitive awareness of what is going on in their own body and mind. This is actually a step further than the typical mindfulness, and, I, and there are two ways to look at mindfulness. One is the meditation art, and, and, and that's good. And the other one is I'm attending to my thoughts uh, without judging them, paying attention to where they come from, et cetera, and so forth, okay? But doesn't this go a little bit further? Let's say, let's say that I have the realization that maybe, you know, in my life I have had some self-sabotaging patterns. I've done some stupid things that have really injured my career. Uh, and, and they're repetitive. I've, I've seen this happen more than one time. Doing this process of 26 repetitions, saying to myself, uh, I recognize uh, that I'm self-sabotaging or some such thing. Or, you know, whatever reason is that I think maybe you can fill this in uh, better. Will that assist me in uncovering causes for that sort of behavior? I believe so. The, the unconscious mind will reveal what it knows to the conscious mind, and that's what, it, what this process does. It's the unconscious revealing to the conscious mind so that you will know cognitively what to do. Okay, so if I've got you right, then that suggests that the repetition process itself may give rise to some trance-like state, what we consider alpha at least. I mean, we've entered into this this state where the subconscious does have the ability to address us directly, like in dream sleep. Is that what happens? A repetition produce an altered state of brainwave activity? Well, it changes it. Well, what I've observed is in sensory acuity, watching clients, I'll see them do a, like a Freudian twitch or something when they, when they go through a breakthrough, and that means there's been a chemical change in their body. Explain that to me. How does the twitch suggest there's a chemical change? Okay, you've met somebody that uh, their eye is twitching, and they say, I don't, I don't have a problem. And yep. let's say they've been in combat, and their, their nervous system is totally frayed. Right. And everybody can see that they've got a problem because they're twitching, their eyes twitching, and that's not the norm. So when... If you'll recall, in Milton Erickson, he would look for the twitch in the person. Right. So when the you, person, when he hit the nail on the head, you can get a knee, a semi knee jerk reaction. Right, you get this micro muscle movement. Exactly, uh, and 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 of course that means that the neurochemicals in the brain have momentarily altered, and that changes body chemistry. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Now, okay. in popular thought, they, uh, they say repetition is the mother of all skill. Yeah, and I suppose in another sense, what we, you know, what fires together wires together is the other metaphor that is very often used in this instance. But that gives rise to the question that, when you're doing this repetition, you are creating a neural pattern that is a fire-wire kind of pattern. Does that, I mean, have you found that there's any contraindication to that? No, I've seen that, that, that it does cause you know, a stimulus response. And then you, as you work through the process, you then want to anchor 
something else into the, you know, get another stimulus response and build off of what what you've done. Once you've gotten to a realization that you've uh, you've got to the problem, and then you can make uh, personal change. Okay, now you just used the word anchor, and of course you're an NLP person, and you and I know what that means, but many people in our audience may not. I've got a hard break coming up. When we come back from the break, I'm going to ask you to explain what you mean by anchoring this process, uh, because it, you know, what you're addressing is maybe counterintuitive to a lot of people. Um, but at, at, at that point, when we come back, let's discuss anchoring. Okay, we're speaking thank you. with the. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Nichols about his life and new book, When Time Doesn't Heal. To learn more about Dr. Nichols and his work, visit his website at Dr. M. Nichols. That's Dr. M. Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S dot net. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring Dr. Nichols discussing his book and the healing process. If you're listening on the dial, Remember, you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Michael Nichols about his life and new book, When Time Doesn't Heal. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is a new hobby of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. And you might be surprised sometimes at the self-disclosure we get from the music our guests choose. So on that, we just played Ravel's Bolero. So please tell us, Dr. Nichols, how does it instruct us about who you are? Why is it important to you? Uh, Ravel's uh, Bolero and then the other great classic, uh, the 18... 12 Overture have the same type of themes running through them. They're very repetitive. Repetition is the mother of all skill. And I think the reason those two uh, classics are so great is they, they dynamic is the same. They, the repetition of the theme that goes through it. Well, and so much of your training is about the power of repetition. So I suppose that, you know, is a congruent answer anyway isn't it you don't think of the movie 10 then right no i think of only the repetition and what's going on in the person's mind and uh, as a person wants to go towards healing the, the the negative thoughts keep repeating themselves until they break through and they go through threshold to the healing side Okay, before the break, uh, you had just used the term anchor, which is a neuro-linguistic programming term, and uh, I I informed you that I was going to ask you to flesh that out for our audience when we got back. So give it a go. Tell us, what do you mean by anchoring, and give us an example. Well, you you hit it a few minutes ago in the start of the program about Ivan Pavlov. An anchor is a stimulus with a desired response. So an anchor is set up that any time, let's say, a negative stimulus comes up, you're able to shift from a negative reaction to the positive desired reaction. So a person can and may program that into themselves. Okay, so give us an example of how you would do that. So let's, let's take a situation, all right? I have used the 26 repetitions. I have made a uncovering, and uh, that association, that, that new uncovering, is still associated with the pain that I started out with as a result of the grieving process, using your, your model here. Well, How do models, I... Huh? Go ahead. What are you going to say? One of the models I'm using now is cognitive bias modification. Okay, explain that. Okay, cognitive bias modification is where a person, uh, they have a bias for something, let's say, negative. But by focusing only on something positive and if they have enough repetitions, when they see the negative thing, they'll only think the positive response. Okay, now... So I'm using some what we'll call enhanced virtual reality, a computer program to program, and I use this on myself and, uh, and with clients, is I will look at these pictures and only, and if out of, let's say there's 
16 choices. I only choose the positive one, and then it rewards me just like in the Pavlovian dog scenario. The dog is rewarded for choosing the correct answer. A person is rewarded for choosing the correct answer, which is a uh, healing answer. Okay, but now that requires me sitting in front of the computer. That requires special software. I don't see that in your book. No, so I don't. I... This is the newest stuff. This is this is uh, stuff that's come out. As, I think uh, cognitive bias modification field is only about four to five years old. Now, I'm familiar with that, but let's go back to anchoring okay. in the traditional NLP sense. So without someone being in front of that computer... How do they change a negative image, a negative association? How do they anchor it to a new positive one? Because, you know, what what the naysayers always say here is, look, if I have a negative feeling and I change the image in my mind to something positive, haven't I just transferred that negative feeling to what I might otherwise think was a positive so to speak, what we're doing is we're doing a submodality shift. All from what I when I took my NLP training and studied, uh, I'm trying to think of a brain expert uh, that uh, has you know when you have total recall in the brain, every idea is stored in one part of the brain. Okay, and if you will uh, stimulate that spot you'll get the, a complete memory. And by diluting the negative thought, it then can shift it to a positive reaction, which okay, then has a different chemistry in the body. All right. You're, you, when you say idea, are you using that different than memory? Because, I mean, most of the research shows now that uh, memories are stored, if not holographically across the brain, they're at least stored redundantly. And indeed, right. these bright rats have had, you know, different parts of their brain removed, and uh, we've been unable to remove, regardless of the section of the brain, uh, the memory of how to run that maze itself. So you're talking about something different than just memory. Well, yes, it's holographic memory. You're 100% correct on that. And uh, by shifting and diluting the negative thought with positive thoughts, light, in my, my belief system, light always overcomes darkness. So by going to the light, you'll overcome the darkness. Let's take that on for a second, okay? I, I happened to have lunch earlier today, and we were, we were discussing uh, cultures and and, you know, how in some cultures they can eat anything, that if we eat in our culture, cholesterol goes crazy, everybody talks about heart disease, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. One of the suggestions was, you know, scientists aren't looking at some of the subtle difference. So, for example, you can take the culture of Italy, where they their diet is high in, you know, carbs and cholesterol and, you know, and uh, yet, uh, you also have a very religious culture. And so the idea was put forward at lunch that maybe the fact that it's such a religious culture and they bless their food, you know, uh, that there is something to that. Now, there's a lot of research that talks about incorporating spirituality and the added 
power dimension it gives us in some limited research that has shown us, hey, you're likely to live longer and you're likely to be happier and you're likely to be healthier. How important in your view in the healing process is that spiritual component? I believe it's very important because I believe that the kingdom of God is within. And so when we make changes to our spirituality, we're making the changes on the inside. And that's where it all begins then. That's where it all begins because okay. that's where Let, healing is all self-keeping. Let's move on. Um, we addressed four aspects, and I've only asked you about one, so I better slow down a little bit on how deep the query goes and give you an opportunity to tell us. So please explain what you have in mind by acknowledging the emotion or disappointment. Uh, you remove the fear. Once you bring something close enough, what are they used to, some of the leaders used to say, bring my enemies as close to me and let me embrace them. By embracing the issue, the worst thing about anxiety is the unknown of the future. And when you acknowledge the definition that is that I don't know and I recognize that I don't know and that I am fearful of this, there's no longer the fear of fear. You address the fear and the problem. Or let's say a person is depressed. If they acknowledge that they're depressed, they no longer are fearful of what is happening, they have the knowledge of what is happening. Now, there are some, Dr. Nichols, that say fear loses its power when you love it away. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that would, That's right. You love it to death. You bring it close okay, and say, great. I've got fear. And then you're able to recognize, and then you could it bring up courage to overcome the fear because you right. recognize what the problem is. Another step in your program is take ownership. Take ownership. How how do we do that? What exactly do you mean by take ownership? I'm grieving. Of course, I yeah, I, I own it. What do you mean? Well, usually when they're uh, when you take ownership, is you want people are wanting to be in denial, or they're wanting to blame some other cause. And when a person's not at cause then they become victims, and the idea is to get out of the victim mentality and say, yes, I am the cause. I Let's say uh, I didn't do this, but let's say I hadn't talked to my mother, and I said, you know, I haven't talked to my mother for all these years before she died, and I start blaming myself. I could have done more. And then you, the idea is to embrace this, the, the fault. Yes, I could have spent more time. But under the set of circumstances, I did the best I could with what I was feeling at the time and take you know, ownership one, of the issue. One of the things I loved in your book was how on this particular subject you talked about deal-making. And I think everybody out there knows what that is. And, you know, if there are, unfortunately, there are many people who have moved away from religion without recognizing what the real cause is because they have done that deal. You know, the deal that you make with God. Flesh that out for us. Well, there, it can be somewhat therapeutic to think you're making a deal, but the deal you make 
the real deal is to recognize that the problem. And once you take ownership, there are no deals to be made, and God can't be bought. And if you're dealing with your own self, and if God is within, the kingdom is within, then you're dealing with yourself and your own unconscious mind. Right. Where I was going was, of course, you know, how many of us, you know, we prayed and said, if you would only make this happen for me, God, you know, I will do this. You know, we bargain these deals. Uh, we, We bargain with ourselves. We bargain with, you know, and then when the deal goes sour, we have someone to blame. And that seems to be a mechanism that we're like wired in with. We just the the necessity to displace responsibility on somebody else is something I know you've seen it in prison systems as I have, uh, but from a prison system right on through to the so-called saint, our necessity to somehow avoid our own responsibility. And that's what you're talking about when you say take the ownership, quit playing victim. Have I got that right? Exactly. All right, let's talk about future pace. For most people out there, future pace, what, what, what on earth could that possibly mean? Okay, all emotions are based on, at least from NLP standpoint, are based in time. So when you future pace it, you recognize and say something, yes, I made mistakes with my mother in the past and I wished I hadn't, but now I'm going to do things differently. And you have a mental picture, so you can say that in the future. The future pace is you're making a future affirmation of what you're going to do. It's more than just an affirmation, though, isn't it, Dr. Nichols? Doesn't it require some genuine visualization, really seeing where you want to be, uh, you know, making it real in every synthetic sense that we can? Uh, getting as much emotion involved uh, as we possibly can, feeling it, sensing it, etc. Uh, yes, and you, and one good thing to use in that when they future pace is the four tuple. That means using four out of the six different emotions of visual, auditory, or the senses: visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory. And, okay. And the word thoughts of what they want. Give us an example, will you? Give us an example of a visualization that would be a future pace away from post-traumatic stress disorder uh, that would incorporate those four. Okay. The person. Okay. Yeah. A person has to be thinking first in terms of all what the v- different senses are: visual, auditory. Uh, feelings, smell, and taste. And as they look out to the future, when I think of the situation that I was in, and let's say a person was in Vietnam, I can uh, now see myself doing differently. I can feel a cool breeze blowing across my body in this land of heat. Uh, I can smell a sweet rain coming down, and I can feel it hitting on my skin. And then a person could think of their most favorite food and attach and, it all to that one thought. 
I and see. that's future pacing of what they're going to want to experience in the future. And they might touch a spot on their body that will bring that memory back. They could put it on their wrist and just touch their wrist as they're thinking these thoughts. So they're programming that spot on the body to have those memories. So I'm seeing myself at home, uh, in the kitchen. My wife is preparing dinner. I can smell my favorite food. Why I can even taste it. I can't wait to get it. That kind of approach. That's what you're saying. Exactly. All right. Let's do this now. Um, let's address PTSD for a moment. Many suffer from this in a variety of forms. Does your protocol work with all forms, including those extreme cases resulting from uh, the battlefield? And if so, can you give us an example of someone you've been able to help in this way? Uh, the, the one that I can remember is a person came to me. They weren't from the battlefield, but they were... Uh, They'd seen their husband, their ex-husband, take a gun and put it in their mouth and shoot themselves in their presence, and it splattered them with all very negative IR, internal representation, of what happened. And as we dealt with it, we used the repetition model to bring it that they had done everything that they could to make sure it didn't come to that point, and they get away from the guilt, because we know, at least from suicides, People want to put guilt on the other person. Yep. And the repetition model brings it that their purpose was to make me feel guilty, but I did the, they, they take a look at themselves, they can say to themselves, and they can actually do a gestalt role play, pretend the person is there before they shoot themselves. I've done everything I can to help you. And then go through the, uh, through the role play talking to the person. And, and how stating, do I... Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't go mean ahead. to interrupt. Go ahead, Dr. Nichols. Well, they, they, they talk to the person, and I found that's one of the most uh, helpful situations is it gives them just as if uh, their imagination is real, because we know imagination and reality are, is a virtual reality. So they've used a virtual reality technique to talk to that person and say, you know, I know you're going to kill yourself, you know, if they have past knowledge. I know you're going to kill yourself. I forgive you, and I forgive myself for having done what we did. And if I could do it better, I would. And I did the best I could under the set of circumstances. And I'm now ready to get on with my life. So at that point, then, concluding a successful dialogue after repetitions, we would uh, finalize it by future pacing with, um, you know, the four uh, um, senses and visualize ourselves in the future in some different scenario where we no longer are are attached to those feelings. Right. And while they're saying this to the person... uh they could uh, pretend that they hug the person, that the person is really there, and in the mind they can pretend that they're really there, and pretending is the same as reality. And they, and they go through the, the, uh, the process of saying goodbye, 
saying what they had wished they had said before if the person were alive. And they clean up anything that could have been left behind, which they yeah. hadn't done previously. Yeah, I found your book powerful. Uh, I, you know, I would add I find it ahead of its time again, just like the award you received uh, in the military. Um, you know, now that you've completed it and you're looking back on it, already you're advancing the technology. You've told us that is, you know. What is your feeling about it? How important do you think this book is to the average person out there as well as to the therapist, that person who is dealing with PTSD or grieving, etc.? Well, I think it gives them a basis to start, and if they will follow the process in the book, they should not have to end up with the therapist because the therapist is just going to, in my opinion, is going to help them do an inner healing anyway. And all healing is done on the inside. All right, Dr. Nichols, I want everyone to know how to get a hold of you, how to uh, follow up on our conversation today, uh, maybe learn about, uh, you know, um, seminars or something you might be providing and get your book. So in one minute, sir or less, please share that with our audience. Okay. It's Dr. M.L., Michael L., but I'm listed in, on all Google searches and all search engines as Dr. M, then the initial L, Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S, and everything will come up. If they want to contact me for, let's say, some personal work, they can contact me uh, via Facebook. That's one of the best ways. Let me give my telephone number, my cell phone. And they can text me on that. That's 818-326-0668. I'll repeat it one more time. 818-326-0668. Okay, and the book then, When Time Doesn't Heal, How to Overcome Loss, Grief, Trauma, and PTSD in 30 Minutes or Less. I want to thank you for your work, Dr. Nichols, and for your willingness to share it with us. Well, thank you for having me on. No, it's a pleasure, and I and I do. I really mean I, I enjoyed reading your book very much. So you just keep up the good work. Keep me informed, will you? I love what you do. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. Uh, special thanks to Eric Ryder for all that he does that makes this easy. I hope you enjoyed our show. Remember to join us next week, and remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.